What you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Tuesday, June 18th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Scientists have figured out why we like dogs. In the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a study was published entitled, Who's a Good Boy? Who's a Good Boy? You are, yes, you are, you're a good boy. No, its actual title was Evolution of Facial Muscle Anatomy in Dogs. In it, the authors, including university professor Rui Diago, came up with this conclusion. I shall now read the summary. Dogs were shaped during the course of domestication, both in their behavior and in their anatomical features. Here... We show that domestication transformed the facial muscle anatomy of dogs specifically for facial communication with humans. A muscle responsible for raising the inner eyebrow intensely is uniformly present in dogs, but not in wolves. We hypothesize that dogs' expressive eyebrows are the result of selection based on humans' preferences. All right. This is a remarkable finding, not only because it explains the doggies doing this, but also because it is scientific authentication of this George Carlin bit from 1983. Did you ever do this? Look right into your doggy's eyes and think of something really sad, and it'll look like it's happening to your dog. (laughs) Strangest thing. They look at you like that. You know why they have so successful a look? Because they got eyebrows. Dogs have eyebrows. That is correct. It took a team of researchers and academics to confirm what George Carlin observed 36 years ago. Look now for a peer-reviewed study on the differences between baseball and football, a double-blind study indicating that people who drive slower than us are idiots, and those who drive faster are maniacs, and a top-line study from the Journal of American Medicine confirming that there are only two states an oven can possibly exist in, heated or unheated, preheated, is a meaningless fucking term. On the show today, I spiel about Patrick Shanahan and the soon-to-be ex-sec-defs offensive defense of offenses against his ex. But first, Raphael Bob Waxberg is the creator of BoJack Horseman and now author of a short story collection about love, regret, superpowers, and almost no game show hosting yellow labs that only wear v-neck t-shirts. Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory by Raphael Bob Waxberg, up next. Back in the 90s, he would watch some very famous TV shows like The Simpsons and Freaks and Geeks, but apparently he, he being Raphael Bob Waxberg, would also be reading perhaps short stories. I'm going to guess Cheever. Oh, he did a lot of things. I heard a podcast where he talked about the musical that he wrote in high school. It sounds cool. But now the creator of BoJack Horseman is out with a new book. It is called Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory book, a collection of short stories. Hello, Raphael. Thanks for coming by. Hello. Thanks Thanks for having me. Let's talk. I'll, I'll just pull one that has a little bit of an overlap with, with Bojack. Rufus, yes. told from the perspective of a dog named mm-hmm. Rufus. His syntax is like Frankenstein. A little bit. Not a lot of prepositions, and no, yet words don't like... don't have time for him. But words like considerate and regretful. Yes. Why is that? Um... 
Well, I wanted the language to be a little bit off, just uh-huh. so you kind of got or because he never explicitly says I am a dog, right? No. Because I think dogs have no awareness of what they are. Like many people also have no awareness of what they are. But also, uh, the dogs are some of the least aware characters in BoJack. That's right. Yeah. But I, so I, I, I wanted to find ways to communicate to the reader that you were reading something not quite human. But I also, in a sense, any uh, fiction that uh, deigns to give dogs the gift of vocabulary is a work of fiction because they do not have it. They do not. I don't believe, think in language. And so, you know, while we are indulging in this fiction that a dog could tell a story, why not give him full faculty of vocabulary and allow him to express himself to you, the reader, even if he could not vocally express himself to the people in the room? And it also is a bit of a fun puzzle to unpack as you hear his perception of the things that are going on and on first and second reference, you're like, wait, what is that? What is that Mm -hmm. soft thing? Who is this woman? And then you realize (laughs) there is a relationship, there is a breakup, there is perhaps bad things done with a pillow, I think. Yes, he destroys a little soft is what he calls it. A little soft, yeah. Uh, so 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 it's a, it's a fun game in yes. a way. And that I think part of it too is is you know now the listener to this understands there's a story about a dog but if you're reading the book without knowing that you would have to discover for yourself that this is a dog protagonist. Right. And what if you were reading an entire other story in the book like uh more of the you that you already are and you think maybe this one's about the dog. <laughs> You'll never know. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. Yeah, now you're on high alert. Am I reading the dog story I now? I know there's one story about a dog but they never tell me which one they don't it is. Say which one it is. You'll have to discover for yourself. I, I think you'll figure it out. There's a lot of uh, sci-fi mirror imaging stuff, and I'm you put your finger on something that I've always thought about, which is that the opposite of a thing isn't always clear. And if you you don't have kids, right? I do not. Currently but if have you kids, ask no. a kid, a smart kid, what's the opposite of something without a clear opposite, cold and hot? Mm-hmm. They'll come up with interesting answers yeah. that aren't always wrong. Right. And in flags, and I think in uh, in bills, paper money. I'm not that into bills, but I like flags. There's the converse. There's the obverse, there's the reverse, and they all mean different things. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, like flipped and upside down and backwards and stuff like that. Interesting. But but the but the opposites of things occur a couple times in the right. stories. Right. Why? Well, uh, you know, like you said, I'm I'm fascinated by the idea that any person or object could have multiple opposites or that you know, we we exist on this spectrum and we don't always know where we are on the spectrum and sometimes seeing the opposite of ourselves can elucidate for uh, ourselves who we are or where we stand um, or who we think is the opposite or who we, yeah who yeah. we think is the opposite like if we say that guy's the opposite of me you're saying something about yourself you are yeah so i'm 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 really interested in that and i'm i'm interested in thinking about unquantifiable living breathing things in mathematical or quantifiable terms attempting to to i mean that story in particular about the opposites is is, is uh, attempting to you know pour some science onto a subject that I think is, is quite unscientific. Why? Do you see the world? I just know you from your work, and it seems, I forget if it's left brain or right brain. I think left brain's the creative one, so let's just stipulate that it's sure. that, unless you know the truth. I believe I have both halves of my brain. Yes, last I know. I Isn't it weird? Yeah. Or else we'd have, like, blindness on uh, one side mm-hmm. and have no use of tools. But I would be surprised if you were the kind of person who wants to quantify and see the world in empirical terms, or are you? Yeah, well, I think most writers probably uh, enjoy the, you know, the the, the spectrum mm-hmm. of everything, right? Like, we're artists, and we want yes. to kind of, you know, we, we, we don't want to be put in a corner. We want to, we want to feel free to create and, uh, you know, explore 
the wide gamut that is existence uh, without having to, you know, define everything. Yes. But I also think part of being a writer and part of being any artist is is a desire to express, which is in a sense defining, right? It's 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 a desire to articulate certain feelings or experiences, which cannot help but flatten them in some mm-hmm. ways. So it's kind of both at once, I yeah. guess. In a way, yes, I, I'm interested in kind of exploring how non-binary things are uh, and how non-quantifiable things are, but I can only do that by attempting to quantify them, right? <laughs> are you the kind of writer who likes things like structure and beats? Have you gotten more into that? Um, I've gotten more into that. I don't you had to? I don't come it? by it honestly. Yeah. I mean, I think the... Uh, Writing in television is very helpful for that because it's it's very important for television, and it's, I think it's very useful for writing collaboratively, yeah. uh, which television is. Yeah, because other people, you have they to orient to know where other you're people. going. You gotta, right. you know, you got to be able to like be on the same page, and you want to like have a good sense of what the story is before someone goes off and writes it, and then comes back like, "What is this?" Yeah. Uh, but when I do my own writing, it's a little more free form. Right. But I think the thinking about structure has really helped me as a, a, a writer of stories. And I think in, in all of my work, I, I'm appreciative for, for those muscles. But even though, uh, true, television helps impose a structure on you, you're in the niche of television where, A, a Netflix, your, your show doesn't have to be a set number of minutes, Well, it, it? Here's, here's the thing. It was actually, we put more structure on the show than the network puts on us. Yes. So, for example, because it's animated, every frame of animation costs a certain amount of money. Right. And so we have a very tight runtime because of budgetary constraints. Right. Netflix doesn't care. They'll air a 30 minute show, a 40 minute show, whatever. And if you're shooting live action, yeah, just keep the camera rolling and you edit it together. And, you know, well, oh, it turned out to be 35 minutes, but I think it works good. You know, we don't have that option because we need, we need to get it down to time before it's animated. Yes. But I think that structure has really helped make the show tighter and make the show better. You know, there are moments where I go, Oh God! It's a you know it's a twenty eight minutes. We need to get down to twenty five thirty, and everything is precious. I can't cut a thing. But then somehow we cut it down. We kill some darlings. We lose some jokes that I love, and I think the final product is better because of it. You've said that in writing BoJack that professionally dealing with dark material lifts the darkness from you. What about in the collection of short stories? Similar purpose. Yeah, similar I would effect? say I would say similarly that I, I feel like a lot of times you know writing about struggle or writing about demons excises them from me and, and allows me to live a, a lighter life where I can you know addressing these things or looking at them makes them less scary I and mean, mm-hmm. they kind of evaporate. Does the lightness of your life – well, in the, the back of the book, you have a nice note to your wife, and then you also say you could probably pinpoint in the book where you met her and where she – I think, yes. If, if, if the stories were rearranged into chronological order mm-hmm. of when I, I, I wrote them, I think you would see a trend away from cynicism about love to a more open-hearted embrace of love. But they're not presented that way in the book, so right. there's a little more of a ping-pong match. So, But that is my question. If it is true that working with dark material lifts the darkness from you, does then that the does the material suffer because we got a a happier uh RBW on our hands. Well, I think that's open to interpretation. I mean, I don't think happier necessarily means worse. You know? I like, hope not. I hope not, too. Society has been I mean, but I don't want to fake it. Way. You know, yeah. I don't I don't want to like try to like put myself in a dark place so I can write dark oh, yeah. things, you know, yeah, and like yeah. and but I also think there's something worth examining in hope and joy. And I think you can tell just as interesting stories about on those themes. So no, I, I don't. I don't think my work suffers when I am happier or more, more well adjusted. Bojack is uh, on a march towards more 
uh, maybe self-actualization Perhaps. and joy and insight. I think that <laughs> it's not a, necessarily a linear it's, it's, and no, clear trajectory. He's certainly intending to march in that direction. But yeah. I, but I think there have been uh, moments in past seasons where the audience might have thought, oh, he's now he's turned the corner yeah. and then he kind of falls back again. That is sort of how life goes. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Specific influences in some of the chapters. I read a lot of, or I thought I saw a lot of George Saunders in the chapter with the wedding, where you have to oh, have a stone god and a wine god. And I, would, what is, I would think and the George Saunders influence is more apparent in the story about the historical theme park. Oh, yes. Uh, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that goes without saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm a, I'm Lincoln's a, ghost. Yeah. I'm, that, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Saunders. Um, but I I, uh, I think he, I also, I really admire the way he thinks about stories. Because I think he really mm. he thinks about storytelling, and I, I at least to me as a reader who is not super familiar with interviews about him or insights into how he thinks, but just from his work, it feels like some he's someone who takes storytelling craft very seriously. It doesn't feel like he's dicking around. It feels right. like he's saying, "Okay, how do I communicate this story? Where are the turns happening? What are, what are the character moments? What am I trying to communicate?" Like, and I, I try to approach my stories with that kind of rigor. When you're reading fiction, do you read short stories more than you read novels? Yes. I, do you think the ADHD plays a role in that? A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> I could never – I have a real hard time with novels. Even when I would get a book of short stories, uh, and I've said this a, a, a few times in front of crowds, like, you know, this thing where you get a book of short stories and you go to the table of contents and you look for the shortest one first. Right. And some people are very shocked by that notion. Like, what are you talking about? No, you read it in order. And I go, no, you find the short one <laughs> just to get a taste to yeah. see if you're into it. Yeah. And then you go to the second shortest one and then eventually yeah. you work your way up to the long ones. So when I because was we've all put down a novel and unfinished a right. novel, not finished a novel. But if you do that with a book short stories, it's still it's an fine. accomplishment. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. You, pick it, you don't have to read all of them. That's right. Get enough of them. So I when I was putting my book together, it was very important to me that we have some very short ones right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of those people, you don't have to pick pick around. Just start at the top. We had two real short ones right off the back. Just one's a list. Eat, like a nine exactly, list. Just to kind of ease yeah. you into it, uh, and then we have our first uh, long one after that. And then by that point, you're like, you know, you're the water's fine. This is my last thing I want to ask you. I'll let you out of here. Oftentimes, I've heard you in interviews, and someone will reference all the puns on um, on BoJack, and they'll always describe it as bad puns or corny puns, and it just it 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 infuriates me. Thank you, because I think they're great puns. I agree, and there's just something about a great pun. We can't call it a great joke. You can't just say that is a good pun. Well, I think some people don't like them. I think that's it's, but it's, in the context of BoJack, right. no one has ever heard Princess Caroline go off on one of her. I, fantastic I think runners. It is it's highly, an, I think it is highly subjective. Gee, are you still looking for a star for your transgender Teddy Roosevelt planes, trains, and automobiles reboot? Plans, trans, a man, a canal, Panama? Because someone just became available. You think people who like BoJack also say, I hate those parts? 100%. I think, well, I, what I, what I'm, one of the things I'm proudest of with BoJack, and not the thing, the thing is something else, but one of the things that I'm proudest of BoJack is that lots of people get different things from it. Like, I've yes. heard people say, I love the comedy, but oh, the feeling stuff that bores me. I've heard people say, this is the best drama on television. I hate the jokes. They're corny as hell. You know, I love the show. I hate BoJack, the character. I just want to see the other characters. Uh, you know, all man. And so I like that the show works for all those different people. Um, and so I do not begrudge anyone for not being a fan of puns or tongue twisters and being like, why are they indulging in this? This is so weird. But I think if you love them and they click for you, I would like to think, yes, we do that well. But if you just don't like them, then I cannot convince you they are good because they, you know, they're like nails on a chalkboard for you. What is the thing? The thing I am proudest of with BoJack Horseman uh, is when people tell me 
that I have helped them articulate or identify feelings they have had uh, to other people. When someone says, you know, I, I saw your episode and I saw myself in a way more clearly than I had seen before. or I used your episode to tell my therapist about a relationship that I had. That is when I feel really proud. That feels like I am doing good for this world. And did Freaks and Geeks do that for you? Freaks and Geeks definitely did that for me. That's an early influence in that I was... I very proudly, I think one of the few people who watched that show when it was on, uh, I, I was in high school and it was on Saturday nights. And like the characters in that show, I had nothing to do on Saturday nights. So I would stay home and watch this show. And it was uh, the first time that I felt that I'd seen a show that expressed things that I felt and relationships I had with my friends. And, and, and there were archetypes in that show that I felt like, yes, I know people like this and I've never seen this displayed in quite this way. And so that is something that I, I definitely aspire to in my work. And, uh, and, and I'm very proud when it happens. And what is the thing you're most proud of with someone who will love you in all your damaged glory? Well, I think it's, 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 it's early yet. You know, I'm, I'm curious. About right, because the thing with BoJack is was the reaction to it, to right? And so I, I would like to see what the reaction to this book is, uh, and I hope it will also make me proud. I mean, I'm, I'm proud to have done it, but I, the work is half done now in that I have put it out there, and I, I think the, it will be done when people experience it and, and enjoy it, hopefully. Uh, and so if, if this book does something similar and helps people think about the feelings they have, then I will be very proud of that. Someone who will love you in all your damaged glory. Stories. Stories. That's clarified. Stories by Raphael Bob Waxberg, creator of BoJack Horseman. Thanks for coming in. Great to meet you. What a pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And now the spiel. Patrick Shanahan will not become the next Secretary of Defense and will, in fact, be stepping down as acting Secretary of Defense. Shanahan had been in the acting capacity since January 1st of this year. For a year and a half before that, he was Senate-confirmed Deputy Secretary of Defense. Before that, he was an executive with Boeing. It was during that time that he and his now ex-wife were involved in a domestic dispute that resulted in her being charged with assault, a charge that was later dropped. That was in 2010. In late 2011, an incident occurred, which has just now been revealed by the Washington Post. Shanahan's ex-wife was living with their children in Florida when the couple's 17-year-old son beat her with a baseball bat, fracturing her skull and elbow. The 17-year-old William Shanahan then, according to Sarasota police, left her, quote, to lie in a pool of blood and then unplug the landline phone cord, depriving the victim and the younger brother the use of 911 to render aid. This was not before he, quote, tossed a bottle of rubbing alcohol to his younger brother and told him, quote, you clean her up. Patrick Shanahan was living in Seattle at the time. He flew to Florida. He holed up, sorry, less charged. He got a hotel room with his son, who was actively being pursued by the police and evading them. Shanahan hired defense lawyers and orchestrated his son's surrender. He also wrote a memo, which he says he now regrets, arguing that his son's repeated blows to his mother's skull was an act of self-defense because, quote, Will's mother harassed him for nearly three hours before the incident. Now, perhaps you could argue that Patrick Shanahan's only crime was aggressively sticking up for his son, arguing for his son's freedom, trying to keep him out of jail, that wound up being a successful argument, by the way, working hard to secure his son's future, which he did. 
Patrick was a regent at the University of Washington, which William was allowed to attend to pursue his promising baseball career, though my search of all the UW baseball rosters of the time doesn't return anyone named Will Shanahan. But the point is, even if the only crime that Shanahan, the father, was guilty of was aggressively defending the son, it doesn't matter. He's not being fined. He's not being sanctioned. He's not being imprisoned. He's not being punished. He's not being deprived of a job. He is, however, being considered for a cabinet position, a job that is sixth in line for the presidency. And what's more, it is in the public's interest to know the background and character of a person who is acting Secretary of Defense and indeed Deputy Secretary of Defense, a Senate-confirmed position. But the Senate Armed Services Committee was apparently never fully apprised of Shanahan's past. Shanahan argues that, quote, dredging up the episode, meaning his son's beating of his ex-wife, dredging up the episode publicly will ruin my son's life. This is an echo of the claim he put forth in 2011 about his son. If he has to sit in jail for 21 days... Not only is that going to traumatize him, he's not going to finish the semester, probably get kicked off the baseball team. Everything is going to be over for him. Yeah, what emotional trauma it must have caused, this infliction of blunt force trauma on a woman. What a shame it would be if the reputational standing of the lad were to suffer if we knew that he beat his mother with a baseball bat and cut the phone lines and went on the lam. And what work much of the media has been doing, in my estimation, in describing these actions in the terms most gentle to Patrick Shanahan. This was Brett Baer on the Fox News Channel. Uh, And there was this incident with his son uh, getting in an altercation with the ex-wife as well. Mm -hmm. An altercation. Baseball bat to the head. Kerfuffle. Altercation. Two sides. I guess it was a disagreement about whether she wanted that baseball bat to the head. If I went up to Brett Baer and hit him with a baseball bat, would the best way to describe that be we got into an altercation? Baer went on. Uh, It is painful. Okay, painful. So finally, an acknowledgement that the woman lying on the ground bleeding from the cranium was hurt. Oh no, that is not the pain that he was referring to. The the story is painful. He talks about it in very painful uh, terms and essentially says that the reason for this decision is to not drag his family through all of those details again and again. The AP's White House reporter, Jonathan Lemire, tweeted of Shanahan, quote, his wife was arrested after punching him in the face and his son was arrested after a separate incident in which he hit his mother with a baseball bat public disclosure of decade-old episodes would re-traumatize his young adult son, Shanahan said. So an incident or an attack that occurred in November of 2011 is not just, as a matter of fact, a decade old. And when Shanahan was confirmed by the Senate, despite the Senate not knowing the full details of his past, it was 2017, and the incident then was five years and eight months old. And yes, indeed, having been revealed to have almost killed his mother with a baseball bat, could prove irksome for the lad who is now a 25-year-old man. Also, could have proved politically inconvenient for Shanahan. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut and a member of the Armed Services Committee, said, quote, I feel there has been a deliberate concealment here. This is potentially a violation of law. He was citing Shanahan lying on disclosure forms. 
And Politico reported that the White House worried about the Armed Services Committee's reaction, especially one member, I will quote from that political story, a particular concern the White House official said was Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat in New York, a member of the Armed Services Committee, Democratic presidential candidate, and longtime critic of the Pentagon's handling of sexual assault and abuse cases against female service members. Though not directly analogous to the litany of documented cases of such assaults, Reports about Shanahan's private life, the White House worried, might hand Gillibrand and like-minded committee Democrats a cudgel to wield against Shanahan's nomination. A cudgel, sort of like a baseball bat, but more old-fashioned. Metaphorical attacks come with fewer costs than actual ones, I guess. That's the cudgel they worry about. Now, keep all that in mind, that the, that the White House was so concerned that it would be twisted or used against Shanahan, that they had to keep it quiet. Keep that in mind when considering President Trump's comments today on the revelations. I had heard about it yesterday for the first time. I didn't know about it. I had heard about it yesterday. And it's, it's uh, very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. And then the president's asked, well, what does this say about the White House vetting process? No, we have a very good vetting process, and you take a look at our cabinet and our secretary is very good, but we have a, a great vetting process. But They do not have a good vetting process, and that is why the public should be outraged. Perhaps not necessarily even by what Shanahan did, Patrick Shanahan. Perhaps he acted as a parent would or should or could be expected to act. But the hiding of the facts and the contempt for oversight and the envisioning of the proper role of government accountability as a nuisance to be elided, that's what we should be outraged over. You know, if the story were out there and owned up to, it is possible that Shanahan could have still been confirmed. The Senate confirmed Gina Haspel. She authorized torture in their very names. Now, we can't say, well, if this were a normal world or in the normal course of things about such an abnormal story, perhaps about such an abnormal time. But part of the reason why Shanahan didn't disclose his past and why the Washington Post had to chase down this story and why the White House just let him twist unconfirmed because they either didn't know about the baseball attack or they did, and I can't decide which one was worse. The reason why all this horrible dysfunction was allowed to fester doesn't really have anything to do with Patrick Shanahan, his family, or the particulars of this case. It is about the White House's incompetence. They have no bench. They have no options. They have no qualified people eager to work for them. If there were other capable people for the job, they could have just said, you know, it's a shame, Pat, but it's not going to work out for you this time. Or they could have said, I'm with you, Pat. Let's get in front of this and try to argue our best case for confirmation. Instead, they had to act with disdain for the process as they incompetently tried to shade the truth. Because what choice do they have? Their incompetence leaves them with no backup plans. What a shambles and what a tragedy this whole thing is. And by this whole thing, I mean Patrick Shanahan, his family, the position of Secretary of Defense, and I also mean the entire leadership of this country. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienna Man, Daniel Schrader, who would like you to know that Henry VIII's first wife had an impressive spice garden. Yeah, that's right. Catherine of Aragon, a paragon of Tarragon. 
T.J. Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, did not like the other Raphael, the Bob Waksberg version. She thought him haughty and eager to take credit for the success of the female-led show, Tuca and Birdie. She says this charge of him being a virulent, arrogant, surrogate parrot gent wasn't meant to be malevolent, but I'd say her time is better spent in an environment with less disparagement. Here's a trivia question. Sign up for the GIST newsletter at slate.com slash GIST news. We'll send you the answer to it. So by my calculations, we've had at least eight people as guests on the show who have voiced BoJack Horseman characters. How many can you name? By the way, the correct answer is to name them, not to say the number eight or seven. The gist. So what's the difference between a Pakistani politician and a plus-size Scottish modeling agency? One uses a cat filter, the other uses a fat kilter. As opposed to President Trump when he yelled at Mick Mulvaney, showing himself to be an off-kilter cough filter. Oopro-depro-dupro, and thanks for listening.